Ephesians chapter 1, in the first two verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. I will read our word this morning. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word as we enter into this new series on this amazing, magisterial, breathtaking book. As one commentator put it, it is music, theology set to music. And so that means that it's daunting that we would walk into this, studying it, presenting it, trying to appropriate it, trying to partake of the glories of your holy name. We need your help, in other words, by your Spirit, through Jesus Christ, to your glory, for our joy. Amen. So if you're thinking about your life and you are thinking about how you do it, what gives you power? What gives you power to live? To get up every morning, take a shower, get dressed, eat breakfast, maybe get your kids off to school, maybe get off to work. And then what is it that gives you power to do that, to do the rest of your day, to do your work well? And then when the kids come home, helping them to study, maybe sitting down with the Bible with them, how do you do that? What power do you need to do all those things? How do you deal also with life? I think you know what I mean. With all the stuff life throws at you. One day, everything's fine, everything's good, and the next day you are in a hole. Maybe you put yourself there. Maybe someone else did. Anxiety, self-doubt, fear, depression, apathy, suffering. What gives you the power to deal with all that life throws at you? Because you need something. Everyone needs something. And everyone picks something to power them, to empower them. Especially when we are on the ropes. Maybe some of you feel that way today. You cannot imagine life throwing one more thing at you. And you're asking yourself. You're asking the skies. You're asking the Lord, how am I going to survive? It's a serious question. So I was riding in the car with my kids the other day, and we've started this thing where as we're riding off to school, as I'm taking them off to school, we talk about a subject, usually something from the book of Proverbs, and I'll ask them, what do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about what wisdom is, what love is, what sacrifice is? And then we talk through it. I ask them to define it, how they work it out into their lives, how, the, how, it, how it relates to our Christian faith. Well, the other morning we talked about courage, about courage. And we said that together, they were helping me, that we said that courage is doing something good, but scary. Courage is doing something that you should do, even if it might not end well. 
And courage, we said, is different than stupidity. If you climb up on a roof for fun, that's not so smart. But if you climb up on a roof because you are a roofer and you want to provide for your family, that is courageous. Courage in this life is important. It is vital. And especially as a Christian, if you are a believer, you need courage in this life. In the face of tremendous opposition, Opposition in our own hearts. We are facing our own temptation, trying to live out our life. It is very difficult. We're opposed by others. It takes courage to do what is right and godly when people think you're crazy or narrow-minded. My kids are already facing that. How do I live out my faith in my school with my friends? We are opposed by life's circumstances. Suffering comes. Tim Keller says that there is nothing so inevitable as suffering. And we want to despair. It takes courage to hang on. We are opposed by the world. If you were with us last week, last Sunday morning or last Sunday night, you got to hear Oleg Rutke. I, when I type his name in an email now, I put Oleg with an, apostrophe, with a, an exclamation point. He is full of life, that guy. And yet his life, is incredibly hard. He told me that he was in our house and he told me that when he often goes up to Turkey to share the gospel, to bring Bibles, it is always risky. Always. It's not just that he could get in trouble. He told me that he almost was put in prison for five years at one point. God saved him. But it's more than that. He could die, he said. And so every time before he goes, he gathers his family together and they look at each other and all of them know this could be the last time that they say goodbye. That is courage. So I'm in the car with my kids and I say, okay, kids, how can you be courageous like that? How can you follow God when everything everything else is telling you not to? And that's when they got out of the car. But the answer is simple. It's power. We need power to face suffering, to make it through another day. We need a power that will will help us do what is right with our bodies, with our outreach and evangelism, with our money, with everything. Again, we are beginning a series in the book of Ephesians this morning. And my prayer, the elders' prayer, is that this is going to be an important event in the life of this church. These six chapters from the Apostle Paul are meant to ground us and then unleash us. Truly to live out what we have committed to do as a people, all of grace for all of life. When we allow the Spirit to implant within us these glorious truths, our roots will go down deep. And when we allow the Spirit to teach us how to live in line with these glorious truths, our growth will be massive. And the Apostle Paul does not waste any time getting to it. Right out of the gates, he is preaching the gospel and telling us how to live. He is setting the stage. So I want to be patient in hearing him out this morning. We're going to use three points to walk walk through these two verses this morning. One, the power of the word. Two, the power in knowing our true selves. And three, the power in grace and peace. One, the power of the word. Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Stop there. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, he is doing something that we all do in life. I'll just talk about people who are in business, people who are, they go out to a job every day, they're in sales or some other type of business. When they present themselves, they don't just give their name, they are giving their background, their resume, just in a few words. You don't just come up to someone and say, hi, I'm Chad, and that's all you need to know about me. The person's going to say, okay, Chad, I need to know a little more about you before I do business with you. Who in the world are you? And that's when you share who you are, the business that you've come from, the position that you have. Maybe where you went to school. You work these things in because you know you need something to make sure they know that you have a little bit of authority. You can be trusted. That's what Paul is doing here. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not name dropping. He's not being arrogant. He is simply telling it like it is. I am an apostle. Now that is not a word we use today. What did he mean? Well, it depends on, in the New Testament, if it's a lowercase a or a big, big, uppercase a apostle. Big case, that doesn't make any sense. Lowercase a apostle. That was someone who was just sent out on mission to do the work of Jesus Christ. That is not what Paul is talking about here. He is something different. He is someone different. He is an apostle with a capital A, and that means, very simply, that he was called and sent by Jesus Christ himself. Apostles were men who were called directly by Jesus and sent out by Jesus. Paul, if you know, he was Saul at the time. He was on the Damascus Road, and he had no idea what was coming. He was riding high in his persecution of the Christians. He was riding high as an elite Jew. I like to call him the Michael Jordan of Jews. He was at the top. He was riding high with tremendous power, or so he thought. And then Jesus came to him, and Paul experienced true power for the first time. Listen, he probably thought he was going to die. Whenever you come against power like that, you think, this is it, I'm done for. But Christ and his power did not kill him, but saved him. Jesus spoke, and Paul was redeemed. Was Paul looking for this? No, he was not looking for this. And he definitely does not deserve it or earn it. He deserved the opposite, and yet Jesus came to him. And his life would never be the same. But now he had a hold of true power, real power. But it was different this time. Now power ran through him. He was a conduit for the power of Christ. He was a conduit sent out by the power of the will of God. That's the next part of our verse. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Paul believed in his life that every second of every day, every heartbeat, every breath, every decision was held up and pushed along by the very will and power of God. I've been whitewater rafting a couple times. I love it. It's terrifying, but it is amazing. There's really nothing like it. 
the fear, the exhilaration, and you are riding on the top of immense power, power that can light cities. And you're kind of in control, or at least you think you are, but you're mainly along for the ride. You learn that very quickly. You're steering, but all the power is underneath you. It is pushing you down with that rushing water. Paul's life was teeming with the power of God. His life was riding on the sovereign will of the Almighty. The sovereign will of the Almighty. Paul is teeming with power. That's the point. His life is teeming with power. Now, what's the upshot of this? This is important. Paul's words carried weight. They carried immense weight power. He was an apostle carried along by the will of God and Christ Jesus. And this means something very important, that Paul's words were God's word. They are God's word. This is something we take for granted. When we see his name, we assume it too easily. Paul's words were and are authoritative, authoritative, commanding, trustworthy, dependable. Paul will write later that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Who is he talking about? He's talking about someone else? He's talking about some other author? No, he is talking about himself. He is relaying the words of God because he is an apostle. He is sent by the will of God in the power of Christ Jesus. Now, don't fall into the trap of saying, well, listen, I I like Paul. I listen to Paul once, once in a while, but I really listen to Jesus. Jesus is my guy. Paul had some good things to say, but I really take what Jesus said to heart. Now, I have a red-letter Bible. That's my Bible. And that means that Jesus' words, every word that he said, is highlighted in red. That's fine. But it can give the impression that his words are somehow more powerful, more weighty, more important than the rest of the Bible. But here this morning, as we are getting into the book of Ephesians, that the whole Bible is the word of God. Paul's words to us are true and authoritative. And this is why this is important, because they are power. They are power. When we listen to them, when we heed them, when we appropriate them into our lives, we too have power. Listen closely. The Bible is not a self-help book. It is a message about God for our salvation, for our sustenance. That's right. We are sustained by the word of God, as though it were food. When Satan has taken Jesus out into the wilderness and he's trying to tempt him, you remember this? The first thing he tries to do is try to get him to eat. But he does it by saying, Jesus, you have power. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus is starving. But he responds quickly, forcefully. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, that is quite the promise. The promise of immeasurable power. A promise to fulfill us and sustain us. And listen, friends, so few of us take advantage 
of it if only we would let the word fill our minds and our hearts. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the whole heart. The word of God is power. As we go into this series, hold that truth close. The word of God is power. Now, why does it give us power? Paul tells us. It gives us power by revealing to us our true selves, reminding us of our true selves. This is the second point. We have power in knowing our true selves. Ephesians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Okay, so Paul, he's introduced himself. I'm an apostle. I'm someone specific. I have specific credentials. This is why I can speak to you. But listen, you are specific too. I'm not writing just to anyone. I'm not just writing to generally anyone out there. I'm writing to a specific people, to the saints, not the Christians, not the brothers and sisters, not to the Ephesian church, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is language teeming with power because it is revealing who you truly are. That is so powerful. Because another power our whole lives has been speaking to us. We have told ourselves, we have been told who we are our whole lives. Some good, some bad. And it has stuck. We believe things about ourselves that often torture us things that we cannot live up to, things that we don't feel like we can ever outrun. We believe things about ourselves, Paul is saying, that must be replaced. He is not speaking to your old self. He is speaking to saints, to the saints who are faithful in Jesus Christ. Now, you can imagine that Paul is not talking about the saints in the Catholic Church, the few men and women who somehow gain sainthood in the church. This is not a sainthood that you can earn. He's not talking about your great-grandma who was a dear old saint. What is a saint? A saint is this. To be set apart by God for God. Hear that again. To be a saint is to be set apart by God for God. Our sainthood then is not dependent on us. We do not have to be good. We cannot be good to get this status. He gives it to us. By the blood of his son, listen friends, he adopts us and he cherishes us. Tim Keller says it this way, it makes me blush a little bit and yet it is gloriously true. Jesus is ravished and smitten with us. Even those of us whom no one else notices whom no one else notices. I was actually that guy in high school. If you've heard my testimony, my faith story, I was invisible. No one knew me, and it was mainly because I didn't want anyone to know me. I was angry and depressed, and I wanted no one to know anything about me, so I pushed people away. But I hated it. 
deep down. Because it became my badge. It became my identity. I believed that who I was was nobody. Unloved. Invisible. Now, even at the time as it is now, it was not true. It was a lie that I was believing. Satan was trying to get me to believe something about myself that just was not real or true. I don't know if I would have heard it at the time if someone had said it. What I've learned is this. God loved me and saved me for my holiness and my joy. I believed I was invisible. And the truth was not only that. It was not that at all. The God of the universe saw me. He identified me. And he said, you are a saint. You are my child. I have set you apart for me forever. Believe this. One of my favorite TV shows was Friday Night Lights. It's off the air now. One of my favorite scenes in my favorite TV shows is the scene with the coach. He's the coach of this football team. His name is Eric Taylor. And he's been helping this guy, this running back, this star running back named Brian Smash Williams. Now, Brian was a star athlete in high school, the best player on the team. And he was set to go play for one of the the biggest universities, Nebraska, Alabama. But then he made some huge mistakes. In his senior year, he got hurt. And he missed the opportunity to play college ball. And for many, that is it. That's a death sentence. You will never play again. But Eric Taylor believed in this kid. Eric Taylor was decent and good. His coach loved him and he didn't let him off the hook. No, he believed that Eric Taylor would play college football. He could do it. And so he trained him back up after his injury for months. And then he called all the coaches he could throughout the country just to give him one shot. And he finally gets Brian Smash Williams a tryout. And he has to do it by risking his own reputation and career. And then right before he goes out onto the field to do this tryout, Coach Taylor grabs him. He looks at him and he says this. You listen to me. You listen to me closer than you ever have before. Do you remember that that game with Rutledge in the fourth quarter when you were a senior? You came into that game and you took over that game. Play by play, you owned that game. I watched you that day. And I said to myself, that kid is going to go all the way. Right now, right here, God has placed you to do what you do best. Go all the way. And he goes out and he gets a place on the team. It is such a powerful scene, not because it's sports, Not because it's sports. Not because this kid was something extra special or great. It is so powerful because of the words that Eric Taylor spoke into that kid's life. He set him apart. I know you. I know who you are. You will do this. Now go all the way. The Apostle Paul, in Christ Jesus speaking the words of God, sent out by the will of God, tells you now, you are his saints. You are set apart, loved by him. And we are set apart, why? Why are we truly set apart? Is it because of anything in us? Any goodness in us? No, this is so important, we can't miss this. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And are faithful in Christ Jesus. We are faithful. We are saints because of Jesus. That little preposition there is so important in Christian theology. The preposition in We are in Christ Jesus. If you are faithful, you are in Him. Which means on the other, on the one hand, that our faith is in Him. It's in His works, His death and resurrection. On the other hand, we are united with Him now. We live with Him. We exist as one with Him. There is no more intimate relationship than this. Our relationship with Christ is stronger, more personal, more intimate than any relationship that we have on earth with our friends, our spouses, even our children. Christ is in us and we are in him. He's just unveiling who you are. You are saints in Jesus Christ. But he says one more thing. This is so important. I didn't see this at first. I didn't notice at first. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and and faithful in Jesus Christ. So you are saints in Christ Jesus, but also in Ephesus. That's important. We are now spiritually connected to Christ who is in heaven, but we are still here on earth. We are still here on earth. God has not just set you apart for himself, but for others. We have been saved and we have been sent. Saints in Ephesus. Saints in Los Angeles. Saints in New York. Saints in Boston. Saints in North Andover. Saints in Haverhill and Methuen and Atkinson and Lowell and Amesbury and Merrimack and Reading and Winthrop. This is also who you are. John Sott says this, Many of our spiritual troubles arise from our failure to remember that we are citizens of two kingdoms. We tend either to pursue, pursue Christ and withdraw from the world, or to become preoccupied with the world and forget that we are also in Christ. Paul is telling us, remember who you are. You are saints in Jesus and in the world. You are set apart and you are sent for your city, your town, your neighborhood. Not just for your own enjoyment. The places that you live, that is your mission field. Your kids' school, your workplace, your group of friends. It is not just for your own benefit. It is the mission field God has sent you to. You are saint and you are sent. Listen, friends, if we wake up saying this every morning, I am a saint of God in the town of Amesbury, in the town of North Andover. How will we deal with the world? How will we relate to friends and family and coworkers? soccer coaches. You are a saint and you are sent. And friends, that is power. That is power. Last point this morning. The power is grace and peace. The power is grace and peace. Verse 2. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is pretty conventional for Paul. Pretty conventional greeting. But even when something is conventional for Paul... There's so much packed inside of it. 
John Stott says that we may safely say that nothing from Paul's pen was ever purely conventional. And so when he uses the word grace and when he uses the word peace, this is not just simply a hello. This is a statement of power, grace and peace to you. What is grace? What is grace? This is the question I want everyone to be able to ask like it's anything in your life, the thing that is so easy for you to answer. We ask this about our church. What is your church about? Well, you do it by defining the word grace. Grace is unearned, undeserved favor of God. I have been given everything in Jesus, even though I did not earn it, even though I deserved the opposite. We live by grace. We are, we are riding on grace. Do you know what that word means? Are you living by that word? That is what Paul is telling you. This is your power. When I talk, talk to people about grace, I say that the, the people, the greatest people on the planet are those who understand that everything is by grace. Not just some parts of their life, but every part, every part. It carries us along. We live by it. We are helped along by it, guided by it, founded by it. When I'm doing something hard, I'm writing an email that's going to be hard. I'm going into a conversation that's going to be difficult. I close my eyes and I say, Lord, I was saved by your grace and now I will live by it. Move in me. Grace is our power. What about peace? What about peace? If grace is what drove the Father to save us and to keep on saving us, peace is what he won for us. Listen to that again. Peace is what he won for us. This is so important. He was not just gracious to us for no reason. He was gracious to us so that we could have peace with him. We were at war with him, friends. We were his enemies. We had no peace. There was nothing inside of us that made him love us. He loved us by grace. He granted us peace by grace. While we were sinners, while we were enemies with him, Christ came to us and he died for us and he made for us peace with his Father. He made peace for us by taking the punishment as the great enemy of God. but it's not just for back then. It's not just a one-time door you walk through. This is a benefit of the cross that continues. There is so much benefit. Anything that we gained there, we keep with us. We benefit from justification, from our adoption, from our sanctification. We benefit from his peace every day. Paul says this in Philippians 4. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And this is a power. It is a power because of its cascading effect if you have peace with God, then there is no area in your life where you cannot have peace. Peace with God makes for peace everywhere. Peace with yourself. Peace with your life circumstance. Peace with your mission. Peace with your money. Peace with your suffering. Peace with your 
evangelism. Oleg sat in my living room last Sunday, sat like Sunday night, and he was recounting even more stories. Stories that were heartbreaking and heartrending and heart-angering. He even received a call while he was at my house that there was a boy at CPS, the Child Protection Services in Moldova, had rescued out of the sex trade. They had no place to send him, though. They had no money, no place for him to go. And so they reach out to Oleg, and Oleg gets these calls very often, and very often he says, I have no place to send them. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough space in these homes that we're building. And I look at him and I go, how do you deal with that? I said to him, how do you keep at it? How do you not let this work and its many failures totally discourage you? And he looks at me kind of confused. And it wasn't because he doesn't understand English. He understands English better than I do, I'm pretty sure, even though he's only been speaking it for 10 years. He just looked at me and he said, we live by faith. When you have no peace, when you are confronted constantly by the opposite, you'll either despair or you will turn to and rest in the only true and lasting source of peace, which is God in Christ. You are all facing something in your life, something little, something big some sort of ailment or issue or concern. It's plaguing your heart. Maybe it has for years and you want peace. Maybe you say, I need to have a peace about this. But it's not just an emotional feeling that you need. It is a truth that you already have. It is God himself. C.S. Lewis says that God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Friends, you have peace with God by the grace of God. And now everything is changed. My wife and I have been slowly working our way through Ken's Byrne documentary about World War II. It's called The War. And the first episode covers the horrific Bataan Death March where thousands of men and soldiers were captured by, captured by the Japanese army and they were forced to march in the Philippine jungles for six days without food and without water. It's a, it's, it's, an, it's a miracle that anyone survived. They should not have survived. They were always under the threat of being murdered by a Japanese soldier. The documentary, it, it relays the story, retells the story of one man named Glenn Fraser, amazing guy. And I looked him up after. I wanted to learn more about him. And there's, as you can imagine, a lot more to his life than those years that he was in Japan as a POW. When he got home, his story didn't end. His story kept on going, and he continued to suffer. We can only imagine the emotional and spiritual toil that his ordeal had on him. One article read this way, For five decades, 50 years it says, the nightmares kept Glenn a prisoner. He began to wish he had killed some Japanese in the days after the war. Perhaps it would have excised the ghosts that tormented him. And he says that many in his life reinforced this idea. You have every right to be angry. You should hate them. You should want revenge. And then Glenn Fraser, though, realized this was no way to live. He had no peace. And he reached out to his pastor. 
after 50 years, he reached out to his pastor, opened his life and his heart, and he said the conversation went down this way. My preacher told me simply that I've got to get rid of my hatred. I told him, I pride myself in my hatred. Everybody told me I was justified in my hatred. And the preacher responded back, you are not justified yourself in the eyes of God. And so right there he started to pray. He gave his life over to Jesus. Not only would he forgive his captors, but he would find peace with God. And what he discovered was the only identity, the only truth that would let him sleep at night. He was not mainly a soldier. He was not mainly a POW. He was not a hate-filled man who needed revenge for the atrocities committed against him and his friends. He was a child of God, set apart for God, and he had been given access to the greatest power the world had ever seen, grace and peace. The same power that came to him, the power of the word, the power in revealing his identity, the power in grace and peace. If it can save him, what can it do for our lives? Friends, let us live by this as we walk into this book. That is going to be the song that Paul preaches to us. Remember who you are and live it out. What an amazing reality. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your beautiful word, your powerful word. I pray that it has reached our hearts, that it has penetrated our walls where we have not wanted you to come. We have believed things about ourselves, lies from Satan, lies from the world, lies from our own hearts. We believe them for so long. May your truth penetrate us. May it come and tell us again and again and again, we are yours. God, for those who are suffering, for those who are going through an immensely hard time, remind them of your peace. Remind them of your grace. God, as we go now to the table, remind us again as we physically take the bread and the juice, may we be reminded that we have peace with you as we eat and drink May we remember that we are saints set apart for you. God, I pray this for this church. I pray this for this church, that we will be a body that shines this light out. We are not a people for ourselves, but for your glory, for our joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.